Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I am hosting Dr. Shalini Vajhala of Refocus Partners. Also joining me is Caleb Stratton, the Chief Resilient Officer with the city of Hoboken, New Jersey. Shalini and I talk about her work at Refocus, where they help communities think about long-term investment planning in light of climate change. They have an innovative model working closely with cities to determine what's really the best use of their infrastructure investments. Also joining me is one of their partners, the city of Hoboken. We'll hear from Caleb Stratton on how Hoboken decided they needed to take some aggressive action to prepare for the impact of flooding after experiencing firsthand the catastrophic impact of Hurricane Sandy. I like to call this type of work shovel-ready adaptation, and you'll understand the steps it takes to get this process started. Okay, for some updates. Upcoming episodes. Dr. Jisung Park at UCLA comes on to talk about how rising temperatures can impact the labor market and actually kids' grades. It's really fascinating research. I'm also headed to Massachusetts and Martha's Vineyard to learn about how a local environmental group is adapting the coastline there to climate change. And I'm also headed to North Carolina to learn how the Research Triangle area is ramping up their climate work. Some awesome stuff in the pipeline. I want to mention the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios. I've mentioned this in the last episode, and going forward, you're going to hear me talk about this a lot. I'm going to be hosting live talk shows in Simpatico TV. Simpatico Studios is a new software television company that produces live stream talk shows about important business and social problems, policies, and innovations. I'll be anchoring appropriately a super awesome climate adaptation channel where I will interview academics, policymakers, journalists, researchers, and climate adaptation professionals just like yourself. Simpatico is an invite-only professional network, and I'd like to personally extend an invite to all adapters and interested in joining me in a community of peers. Our television shows will be live streamed, meaning you can interact directly with me, my guests, and other community members in chat during our interviews. I'd also like to invite adapters to join me as a guest on my upcoming pilot episodes. If you have a specific problem, policy, best practice, product, or program that you'd like to highlight to your peers, we are ready for you on Simpatico. Videos from all the episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own website and social channels like YouTube. I'm hearing more and more of you are checking it out, and I look forward to hearing from you. Please definitely check it out. We're lining up all sorts of guests. I'm going to be talking to people from all over the world, Bangladesh, Europe, Africa, all over North America. If you are interested in sponsoring a specific podcast or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I share stories from my podcast, my own experiences and adaptation. And if you're thinking of starting your own podcast, I'm doing some podcast consulting. You can contact me via my website, americadapts.org. All right, don't forget to check out the podcast in the classroom initiative we're doing. I've heard from many professors using America Adapts in their classroom. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides that have been developed for eight of my episodes. You can find those discussion guides on my website. Yes, it's a personal mission to get more professors and teachers using podcasts in the classroom. Your students will thank you for it. Okay, let's check in with Dr. Shalini Vajhala and Caleb Stratton. Hey, Adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Dr. Shalini Vajhala. Shalini is the founder and CEO of Refocus Partners. Hi, Shalini. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Great to be here. 
you're doing some very interesting work, and I'm hoping we can use this episode to really explain what I think is very important work. But I was trying to come up with proper ways of describing sort of under the hood type adaptation that needs to be done, but you don't necessarily hear about it. And so I'm hoping that this is going to be a really useful lesson for a lot of people. Fantastic. Let's do it. Okay. So we're going to dig into some of the actual work. I don't want to go too much in the weeds on that yet, but what is Refocus Partners? What are you guys all about? So Refocus is a small design firm that I founded after stepping down from the Obama administration back in 2012. And what makes us somewhat unusual is that we integrate project financing into the design process. And we focus specifically on resilience solutions for cities and communities around the world. So most of our projects, when they are wildly successful, success looks like something that hasn't happened which is hard to find money for. And so that's why the financing is really a big upfront part of what we do. And it makes us pretty different from a standard engineering firm or, or a design firm. That was a really good explanation, but we're going to come back to that really quickly. But first, I, I guess I want to get a little bit more of your background. You, you left the Obama White House in 2012, but uh, what's a bit more of your background? What have you been up to in the last 10, 15 years? <laughs> so I'm a bit of an adaptation renegade. I was trained as an architect, went on to get my PhD in engineering, working on citing big infrastructure. Really, how do you work with communities to make something yes in my backyard rather than not in my backyard and create real community benefits. And from there, I spent several years at a at an economics think tank in D.C. before I got pulled into the Obama administration. I've had a career of really being able to follow and solve interesting problems in the infrastructure space. And that led to four years at the EPA where I was building public-private partnerships for green infrastructure and working with the International and Tribal Affairs Program, which let me experiment and do cool things with communities around the world. You said pulled into the the Obama White House. You almost sounded like you were drafted or something. That must have been exciting, though. <laughs> it was very exciting and very unexpected. So I spent several months at the White House Council on Environmental Quality on some of the really early day environmental and climate policy work. And then I moved into the Office of International and Tribal Affairs at EPA. And neither position was one that I had been kind of wrangling to get into. And so it really let me think pretty broadly and work with some great teams to experiment and do cool things. And in spaces where there wasn't a lot of money available. So we got very creative about spending other people's money. Okay, so you described in a bit of detail what Refocus is all about. But I do this mm -hmm. sometimes to my guests is that you're sitting on the bus and you're sitting next to someone. You have no clue what their background is, but it comes up. What do you do? How do you really simplify describing what you're up to there? How would you do that on the bus? Yeah, so what I usually say, it's mostly airplane seats <laughs> right, and companions, right. is I work with a team to help cities become safer before and after major disasters. And so we help build coastal protections and flood protections and you know keep communities safe from anything that might keep you up at night. So let's get into the meat of this. And I'm going to read a quote. And I was looking over some of the material and some of the tools that you have on your website. And I'm going to have links to all those things on, on, in my show notes. But all right, just hear me out here. Okay. To break free of this cycle, cities and utilities need new alternatives to access new ideas, new partners, and new money and escape old pieces and parts procurement approaches, 
Put simply, cities must be able to buy things differently in order to buy different things. And I, I, I picked that quote out because I thought it, it, it got to the heart of a lot of the things that we, we want to talk about. So, but what is that all about? We are in a funny space here in the U.S., which is a lot of our communities are dealing with legacy infrastructure. The albatrosses of water systems and transportation systems that were built 50 years ago, if we're lucky, a hundred in most places. And cities haven't had the resources through recent decades of recession to be able to do big overhauls of infrastructure. We've been kind of forced into more piecemeal projects and repairs. And one of the big obstacles is that it's really hard to buy new things, right? Like purchasing paper clips for an office kind of gets shoehorned into the same process as buying a water treatment plant. And so the space that we live in is how do you help a city not just buy the same old water treatment plant that it had from 50 years ago with a few little updates, but think of the new and better thing that will make that community more resilient in the face of future challenges, right? So if you look at a city that's trying to transition to green infrastructure, the difference is shopping for a water treatment plant versus shopping for a thousand street trees and miles of roads paving that absorb water. And so you're really looking at the difference between buying an old funnel or a new sponge. And the process is set up better for the funnel where you buy the thing you had from the people that you knew. And that doesn't serve our adaptation interests well. It's not forward looking. It's very much backward looking. And so we tend to work on these sticking point problems that get in the way of big solutions that make a community more sturdy in the face of uh, shocks and stresses. You also mentioned that this is a once in a generation chance to do this planning. And when you think of once in a generation, you're like, well, it's been a while since you've been able to do it. And then you might be missing an opportunity if you don't do it now. What do you mean by that? I think we're really at a cusp of a lot of our communities are dealing with infrastructure systems that are not just old, but are really not meeting their current needs, right? They're not They're not the right size for cities that have lost population. They're not the right size for the cities that have grown really rapidly. And that's everything from water systems to road systems to energy systems. And what I think I mean by a once in a generation chance is that these are really long lived assets, right? It's not like upgrading your software every year. When you buy a water system, it's around for decades if you've done it right and you want it to work well. And these systems aren't super flexible. So you have to really think up front about what the future looks like and build that into your decisions now. And it's not something we've had a lot of practice at. So I think it's an enormous opportunity for communities to really dig out of the hole that we've been in and putting band-aids and short-term fixes on our old infrastructure and get from that failing funnel to the really high-value sponge. Could you briefly talk about the the sort of climate threats that are going to be issues when you think about this type of infrastructure planning. I mean, and it might seem obvious, but yeah, could you walk us through some of those that you're starting to think about? Yeah, I think I can scroll through episodes that you've done with prior guests, right? So it's all the folks that have come in and talk about flood risk and how that's changed or increasing wildfire risk, threatening power infrastructure and vice versa, power infrastructure creating greater wildfire risk. The things that we're talking about are really nuts and bolts climate impacts at a community and a city level. So increased heat on transit systems where you have to run trains less often and more slowly because on high heat days, tracks could buckle in the heat. 
ice where you used to have snow, melt where you used to have ice. So it's all the changing conditions um, that fall under the big umbrella of climate impacts. And the way we follow the thread down is really look at where are existing infrastructure systems becoming less efficient or effective at meeting the needs and the services they were supposed to provide. Okay, so why is this different, though? We're talking about just getting funding for upgrading infrastructure. What is it that you're doing? And and I think uh, maybe you can kind of help me, too, is I I think some of the terminology that you're using is some of these case studies, you know, like procuring resilience opportunities in these kind of projects. Again, walk me through it. As I was doing my homework for this episode, I'm like, okay, what's sort of the core project here? And, And I get it. And so helping me walk through that, I think that would be very useful. But like, how is this different than just saying, you know what, we need new money for infrastructure, and if it's a somewhat progressive city, they're going to just factor in adaptation. So what, what, what are you doing that's kind of different here? But the biggest thing that's different is if you think about old infrastructure, the, the classic example is how you build and pay for a toll road, right, where you figure out that a lot of people need to go from point A to point B. You sort out the cost of building the most efficient connection between those two and how much you're going to charge people to drive on it. And you forecast out your revenues, and that's how you pay back the road. Same thing for a water system. Here are how many people are going to use it. We set our rates. Here's how much money we can expect. And that's what lets us pay back the system. What's different about what we're talking about is a lot of the infrastructure that we need to design and upgrade, actually, the benefit is protection from something, right? A storm hit, but a community wasn't flooded. The revenues don't look the same as paying for a use of something. They look more like something that didn't happen. And so you're trying to capture savings rather than uh, fees. And that makes the financing side of these kinds of systems very, very different, where a mangrove or a seawall, in order to look like a toll road, you're essentially talking about turning what didn't happen into that toll or that revenue stream. So it's really flipping the problem upside down. And that's the biggest difference between adaptation infrastructure, where the primary purpose is protection, and infrastructure where the primary purpose is delivering a service for which you can charge a fee. And in between those two bookends, there are a whole bunch of failures in our existing infrastructure system. So for example, we heavily subsidize water rates. And so there's not enough money to even do the old thing that built the original system. So we have a couple stumbling blocks that we're trying to get over. It's really that we we think about infrastructure differently now than we did uh, 80 years ago or 100 years ago when these systems were built. And they were purely public goods with mostly public money. There's a real emphasis on trying to get more private money into public infrastructure. And then at the other extreme, it's how do you get things to pay for themselves when there isn't an obvious payment stream? And that looks a lot more like energy efficiency. I, I know we're talking a, a lot about sort of the built infrastructure, but you mentioned mangroves and such. And yeah. isn't a lot of this related to just uh, ecosystem services, sort of the, you're, where you're trying to quantify the savings that you occurred because you've, you've saved these mangroves? I mean, is that what you're getting at here? It's just so I'm understanding right? It's a good question. There's a 
there's a spectrum of what I think what types of infrastructure lend themselves to direct financing versus those that need this kind of innovative financing for upfront. All the folks working in the ecosystem services space are doing incredible things. And the bulk of what they're doing is really trying to build confidence and reduce uncertainty around what kinds of benefits these systems provide and how to monetize that, how to actually turn it into a dollar value. We live in a slightly different space, which is because we work on all types of infrastructure, we're generally integrating green and gray into existing systems. And in the case of, you know, the water treatment plant, it doesn't necessarily look like an ecosystem service. What it looks like is you have, you have a system that's more prone to flooding. So you actually see the benefits on the, and the costs on a city's balance sheet or a utility's balance sheet right now. And the best example is, you know, transit and heat, right? There's a very, very clear and direct line between high heat, leaving the most vulnerable transit riders out longer in the high heat days and not being able to run your trains as quickly or as efficiently. And what that shows up on, if you look at a balance sheet of a transit authority is, you lose money today. It's not about a future benefit or a future value. And so I think we live in a slightly different space where the folks doing ecosystem services valuation are almost entirely future focused. And we're much more into the one to five year. How does this affect your community now? And how could it get worse in the future? And so something I say often to mayor's offices is, you know, you have a you have a leaky boat. You have a system that is that needs a lot of maintenance, has a lot of gaps, isn't meeting your current needs. And under climate change, you're likely to leak first and worst where you've already got the patches in place, which is very different than making a case for a whole new boat. You mentioned this one to five year cycle. And then in the future, I had Lad Keith on talking about extreme heat from the University of Arizona. And he yeah. was discussing urban planning and like how up until now, so much of the decision making was based on like previous experience with, you know, weather, climate or whatever. And the, the whole field wasn't comfortable thinking, all right, speculating 20, 30, 50 years from now. And I, I, I guess you kind of you're in the same boat. And so that difference between planning at one to five years, which is very probably interesting and relevant to city planners mm-hmm. and to the 50 year time frame where you're really starting to have to factor in climate change impacts. Uh, how do you deal with that? How do you not only communicate that, but I mean, it's just built into your process, I assume. It is built into our process. And we've we've developed some internal ways, I think, to be clear about the unknown unknowns, right, where we don't have perfect certainty about what the world is going to look like in 50 years. What we do know is that the more rigid your infrastructure systems are, the more likely they are to fail. And so there are principles that you can use to make your planning decisions a little more flexible and have a little more give in your system. And so that actually helps lean toward greener solution. So going back to the water infrastructure example, if you design a water treatment plant that is a single large piece of gray infrastructure and you're trying to forecast out for 50 years what the future is going to look like in terms of heat and water use and water availability and demand, that's a really tough exercise. Whereas if you're building a green system that has tens of thousands of little pieces and parts, you can go in and surgically say, well, this community is a lot hotter than we expected. 
So the street trees here need different maintenance or we need a different type of tree or we need to prepare for more runoff. And so it actually lets us, I think, make the case for distributed solutions and creating more patchwork quilt opportunities for communities where you can replace a patch rather than needing a whole quilt. But Lad Keats episode was great and he's spot on, which is true. We're better at looking backward than forward. And it's easier to anchor to what you knew than very clearly what you don't know yet. Boy, you're referencing previous episodes. Good for you. That's bonus in my eyes. <laughs> I don't get that very often. I, I'm thinking about the people that you work with and let's, again, let's, I'm, getting down to kind of visualizing this. You have this process, but there's certain communities that you're working with. And I, ju I just want to note, I'm going to be talking to someone, Caleb Stratton from the city of Hoboken, and he's going to explain a bit more what's going on there. But who really is your audience? Like as an organization, Refocus, who are you working with? Is it literally just city officials? How does that really work for you? Yeah, so we have three buckets of folks that we work with. And Caleb was one of my favorite collaborators over the last five years. We work directly with cities and communities on major problems that they have, but they don't quite know how to frame a solution yet. And so in the case of Hoboken, Hoboken was one of eight cities that we brought together under a, a philanthropic initiative supported by the Rockefeller Foundation. And we ran a competition and selected eight cities that were trying to solve big adaptation problems. And Hoboken was one of the leading ones right after Hurricane Sandy to come in and say, well, we've got to solve everything. And so in that case, we worked directly with mayor's offices, utilities and public works departments. And we very, very specifically recruited city champions across all three to make sure that folks were working together. Um, you cannot, in many cities, it's very, very difficult to overcome barriers between departments where cities don't necessarily talk to themselves or where there's a lot of opposition, for example, between a maintenance department and a parks department. And so in those cases, we, we identify really operational folks who can be multi-year champions of projects. You're not looking for someone highly political who's going to be in and out of their job very quickly. And you need someone senior enough to carry forward a $100 million project, someone like Caleb. The other bucket of folks that we work with, we work directly with uh, large engineering firms as well and big financial firms. And in those cases, we're generally trying to solve system problems for their clients. And so that's work that doesn't necessarily come through a city doorway, but may lead us to working with a transit authority. And then the last bucket is really when we hit a challenge that we see multiple cities come to us with, like procurement. It's easier to buy the old thing than, than plan for the new thing. We will work directly with philanthropies and say, help us pull together a cohort of cities that are all facing this challenge so we can figure out a, a comprehensive and scalable solution. I imagine some cities, I mean, probably every city says, OK, we have this backlog of infrastructure projects that we need to do. But maybe there's some cities that are like, all right, we're doing relatively well. We might have some minor projects. But if you look at what they're planning for the future, it really isn't focusing in climate change at all. Are you working with any uh, client, like city clients like that, where you, you're able to make that assessment where they're like, all right, overall, they're doing relatively well. They don't have to rebuild their water infrastructure, but they're woefully prepared 10, 20, 30 years from now because they haven't really factored in climate change. You know, it's interesting. I think 
the awareness at the city level has grown so much in the last several years. It's not about whether they've factored in climate change. It's if and how well they have. So, you know, do they feel like they're in the panicked, I know I have all these impacts coming, but I don't know what to do about it space? Or are they in a, here's what I think we should do about it, and now we can't pay for it? And generally, that second category of cities who are who feel like they have the solution but not the money, that's where we are the most productive, because we can sit down with that community and say, well, if you think about this impact differently, or if you think about the solution differently, then you can actually open up access to different types of resources. And a great example on that one, Hoboken really did this best of any of the cities we worked with early on. Uh, We sat down with them and they said, look, we were under 12 feet of water after Sandy. And it was horrifying. They had parts of their community out of power for a couple of weeks. And they did amazing things right after Sandy to get the community back on its feet, but also become very forward looking, looking at 100 years from now, not 50 years or 10 years. And what Hoboken did with us is they said, well, we clearly need to deal with flooding. And we asked them to zoom out. We said, let's think for a minute about what else you want in your community. It can't just be defensive on preventing or protecting against the next Sandy. And so it took some time and some iterative conversations, but Caleb and his team, and and this was under Mayor Don Zimmer, who was fantastic. She said, well, look, for a Our community, we're right next to New York, and we don't have a lot of green space. Hoboken is one square mile and almost entirely paved. So they didn't have a lot of park and recreational space for residents. And they also had a lot of trouble with parking. So lots of cars and commuters who would park in Hoboken and then commute to New York by train. And so once we had a broader sense of their priorities, what we were able to help the city design was a solution that did more than one thing. So you could bring in multiple colors of money to pay for the same project that might have been hard to pay for otherwise. And so in Hoboken's case, they were able to take an original design that we did for them, which was integrating parking to hold flood water. So think of a giant bathtub and combining that with a six acre park that was designed like a sponge with green infrastructure and use those value creation opportunities. So the community got something today that it really values and helps pay for flood protection for the next 50 to 100 years. And so I think what we tend to see is the space where the climate impacts are being seen. They are understood well to different degrees, but it's really the solution space where rather than locking into something small, if you can actually zoom out, you get better outcome. Another great example is the city of El Paso, which El Paso's water system, El Paso gets on the order of less than 10 inches of rain a year, which you you hear about storms in places like Houston, and that's a fraction of what they get in a single event. And What the city of El Paso is dealing with is that its stormwater system is mostly its roads, which means that the roads are becoming increasingly potholed and hard to maintain, and they aren't living up to their design life because of flash flooding. And so the maintenance department is totally overwhelmed. And so working with El Paso, they're... They saw the solution to flash floods and to stormwater management as green infrastructure, but their real obstacle was figuring out how do you maintain this stuff without it becoming a burden on an already overworked maintenance department. And so in that case, they did some really smart early planning and said, well, how do we actually craft a set of solutions and invite ideas for 
green infrastructure solutions that can reduce our maintenance costs and protect our road. And so in that case, it wasn't about designing something different than they envisioned. It was designing a different way to pay for it. I want to make sure I understood you right. Though you think, though, yeah. at the stage of most cities, you know, I'm not, not going to say all cities, but most cities are at least thinking about the, the, these climate change issues, but they're not taking it to that next step of kind of doing the planning that that you guys are doing. Is that, did I have that right? Yeah, I think most cities are thinking about climate change. They're different degrees of prepared to panicked, but the solution space is still wide open. And folks latch on to, you know, I've heard this worked somewhere else. Or I just need a seawall. And oftentimes it takes a deeper dive to get to a better, more tailor-made solution that you can actually implement and pay for. <laughs> okay. It's a recurring theme of me kind of dissing the South because I am from the South. And so <laughs> do, do, do you have any projects in the Southeast? Are you working? And don't say Miami because that's not – No, no. Because <laughs> uh, that's not a southeast city. Um, it's its own creature. Because I would disagree, and I and I've, I I just think there's that's a lot fair. of communities that haven't even they can't even say it. Even forget the politics of it; they just don't say it. And so I think there's a level of sophistication that it sort of takes to even want to have a conversation with you. And I think yeah. <laughs> I guess that's my pushback. I think there's lots and lots of cities that aren't even doing the most basic, like, oh, climate change is an issue. And I mean, it, that's very concerning. Oh, so totally agree. We're coming through entirely different doorways for these conversations, though, which is in in the Deep South, we don't often talk about climate. What we will do is start the conversation by saying, you know, who loses money when this flood happened? Have they gotten worse in the last five years? And that's a very different way to start the discussion. And it does require tiptoeing around some very obvious things. And it's it's very much when when we're involved, I think, <clears throat> to be entirely fair, the communities that have their heads entirely in the sand about climate change are not reaching out to us. Our most direct engagement are with folks who see that they have a problem now, see that it's getting worse, whether they call that climate or not is still open and or whether they attribute it to climate change is still open, but it doesn't prevent us from working with them. And so I think one of the things that we do pretty differently because we're focused on the finance side of becoming more resilient, and we specifically use resilience because there's less opposition to it in communities that have political challenges and tackling climate change head on. We get an entryway into the South and into communities that wouldn't necessarily have things like climate action plans and get to tackle something where it's a really critical underpinning to being more climate smart and resilient. And so a great example is Mobile, Alabama, has been dealing with deferred maintenance backlogs by calling it infrastructure blight. And they're doing a lot more than a lot of communities in the north that haven't dealt with their maintenance backlogs that leave them at greater risk every single year for the next storm. But would they call it climate change? Absolutely not. Would they call it climate action? For sure, no. <laughs> and, and listen, I, I don't think cities need to go out of their way to just say climate change for the sake of being politically correct. But at the same time, let's say you're even saying, well, have, have floods been getting worse in the last five years. If you And this goes back to that conversation about like what's the future going to look like compared to the past. And if they're still just like, well, we're planning for that flood that happened just a couple of years ago, as opposed to like what's really going to happen in, in the future, then not talking about climate change. Oh, that just seems so problematic. 
It has its limits, right? So I think we take a pretty pragmatic approach, which is how do you make things better, if not perfect, in in a lot of the communities where you're still just trying to open the door to these discussions. And the incrementally better for us is really we we measure success by who's less at risk. And in some communities, that is a very different discussion than others where they're talking about 100-year protection versus 10-year protection. And it's very much a it's a community driven decision for us. But we have been surprised, I think, in places that don't seem to have a lot of deep sophistication about climate modeling or forecasts, where we've been able to walk through the door and have a discussion about insurance costs. And it essentially gets you to the same thing, because you're looking at a rising future problem. And you can put it into a different framework that makes it a little bit more palatable to solve. But I agree. It's a huge problem. And I think in order to do this work, you have to be optimistic about the learning curve. <laughs> um, so we we try to go into every community that way. And we do get stuck in some communities. We We end up offering solutions that don't get implemented. Okay, so I, I love speculating about things, and I'm going to get you to speculate here. It, <laughs> it, as I was sort of envisioning how your process unfolds, and let's say there's just this massive uptake, you know, that cities across the country are sort of doing it, but also at the same time, there's going to be winners and losers as there are with everything. And I just imagine yeah. in this sort of future environment, there's a couple things where let, let's say cities that aren't aggressive enough in doing their planning, like what we just talked about, they, they didn't take it seriously enough. Or, and you, you have that federal experience, maybe when it comes to sort of the big grants and the big money that these communities need to tap into, they're going to say, well, we know these big areas are under threat of flooding or risk of this. We yep. don't want, it's going to be a bad investment. And it, I sort of almost envision the rust belt. Be, all mm-hmm. people flooded or the economy's contracted being it was related to some economic and the you know but i'm just thinking there's going to be the equivalent of a rust belt in regards to like you know communities impacted by adaptation and the lack of planning or the actual impact and i just i i wonder if there's any way to kind of even predict where we might have this sort of contraction in in, in areas because of everything that you're doing that's interesting i you know it's it's a fascinating question. It's not something I've thought deeply about, but my instinct is that the Rust Belt was a product of a set of things, the economic factors where you could see a geographic concentration of the impacts. That's why it's a belt. Um, and I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh as my hometown. So I, I know it well and what that kind of economic decimation can do to a set of communities. I think there are two things that are going to make the climate impacts a little bit different. One is that it's it's not a single force that's regionally concentrated, right? If it were just flooding and you were looking, for example, at the Mississippi River region that's been hit incredibly hard in the past couple of years, then you might see more of a geographic concentration. But instead, you have wildfire here in California, flood in the middle of the country in the south, hurricanes along the coast. So I think everybody is feeling a different thing. So there's not that kind of unifying sense of a single thing happening. And the other thing is, I think we're going to see more of the type of, I don't know that you'd call it flight, but just gradual deterioration at a sector level than a geographic level, where you see impacts that play out in industrial corridors that no longer have access to enough water or there's too much water 
for production or supply chains. So my instinct is that we're going to see this in industrial sectors and agricultural sector more readily than we would in specific geographies. Yeah, I agree that sector by sector that's going to be impacted. But I do think geography could come into play that you think sure. like Galveston to Tampa, you could it could be like the 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 flood belt or something like that that there's yeah. going to, these communities it's going to be like a state of entropy. They slowly kind of dissolve because it's the infrastructure investments are going to be too great dealing with sea level rise and all these sort mm-hmm. of impacts and uh, geographically, I do uh, places like Hoboken and New York City, they're going to be able to afford it. But other areas, I think it's just this is going to be sort of an unraveling going on. I think that's true. And I think we're seeing it in slow motion. It's just such slow motion that it's hard to kind of zoom out and get the blurry picture to crystallize. But I think you're absolutely right. We are going to see that. And it's part of why I think the most important things that we can do are some of the least sexy, right, which is helping small communities and medium-sized communities that are less well-resourced get better access to the resources to make that leap. So they're not in a zero-sum game with a New York or a San Francisco, but you're actually able to move the needle in Gary, Indiana. Right. So if I'm kind of thinking of what you're doing, here's an opportunity for a, a community not necessarily have a silver bullet to these problems, but it's taking aggressive action to kind of avoid this sort of unraveling, you know, this sort of pre-planning that's just, you're just, yeah, you're, it's, you're climate proofing yourself as best you can. Exactly right. And I think it's, you know, it's very much, if you, if you look at the small and medium sized communities, it leads you to a lot of issues that don't sound directly adaptation related or resilience related, like deferred maintenance or procurement. But those are really the day-to-day stumbling blocks that keep you from acting and would leave you either in indefinitely studying the problem or ignoring it. Okay, so I, I got a few more questions in this area, and then I, I want to transition to a, just a, a little bit different conversation. But let's say there's someone out there who's involved in this area. I think, first off, you, you, you have a relatively small team, and if you want to mention who who they are and what they kind of do, that, that I think it would be useful. But like, if there was a city out there that wanted to do this, are, are you even a resource or are you so baked into like sort of the projects that you're doing? How does that all work? No, we absolutely take direct phone calls from city. Um, our, our team doesn't really do any marketing. We are, we're tiny. We're four to five people on any given set of projects a year. We tend to do three large infrastructure projects at any given time, but we punch above our weight in a lot of ways because we will partner with and hire whole big firms. And some of our partners will dwarf us in size. So we've worked really well with construction firms like Bechtel. Um, they were involved in some of the early, early Hoboken uh, conceptual design work. Big uh, banking institutions, Goldman Sachs, uh, insurance companies and brokers like Aon and Swiss Re. So we have a reach well beyond what the size of our team might reflect. And part of the reason for that is we don't necessarily know what problem we're solving for a city when we first go in. So for Hoboken, if we had had hydrologists on staff, that might not have helped us very much. We actually needed folks who understood parking and green infrastructure and recreational spaces. And so you have to be able to switch out skill sets to solve the problems and meet the needs that you actually hear from a city. And that doesn't necessarily lend itself to growing a small firm. What it does is it 
it keeps us a lean and mean creative team. And then we source the specific skills and resources we need on a project by project basis. So we have a lot of capacity through partners and on kind of early stage projects. We work with big institutions like the World Bank and federal agencies all the way out to directly working with cities. And when we see something that is a skill set that other folks have that's more direct than anything we could provide, we send them to a pretty wide network of partners. And so I think we're pretty unusual as a social business that we're we're set up to be problem solvers and create market opportunities to really scale the field. And that's where our team, we have uh, lines of work that are helping cities through procurement challenges. And some of that has spun out into its own set of businesses. And we also are doing the same in the insurance space. So it's been a very unusual, I think, path in entrepreneurship for me that has allowed me to stay closer to what I was doing in public service and be this creative problem solver while still creating growth opportunities in kind of projects that turn into lines of business. And so if someone's not even talking to you and I, I, on your website, there's a procurement toolkit. They can go in, just like yeah. go through that to learn a bit more about what they might. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly right. So that's a free resource for cities. Um, it was done with our partners at the Atlas Marketplace, which is a sister company that spun out a few years ago with two of my team members who are leading that um, that company, L. Hempen and Ellery Monks. And they're phenomenal. They are helping cities essentially learn from each other rather than getting bombarded by folks selling technology and trying to figure out what's best for them. And so if you think about a city that's trying to do anything from replacing lead pipes in the water system all the way out to energy efficiency, energy efficient streetlights, right? The best place to learn about what worked and what didn't is from a city that's already tried it. And so the Atlas helps connect those communities, but also helps innovative technology companies kind of break through the advertising cycles where you're kind of shouting among a whole bunch of other folks at trade shows. And it's very hard to show what's actually worked and what hasn't. So that's the kind of thing where the procurement toolkit led to an entire platform to help cities better find, source and procure innovative adaptation solutions. I, I want to end this on talking about the the field of adaptation, but I'm going to talk to Caleb Stratton from the city of Hoboken. What what can I, it, without stealing his thunder, what can I sort of expect to talk about with him? Oh, Caleb is fantastic. So you can, um, he, he is the chief resilience officer now for the city of Hoboken. So he can speak really broadly about how a tiny city like Hoboken that seems well-resourced um, managed to, get to a new level of ambition about what they could do to adapt. And I think one of the things that's most interesting about how Caleb and his colleagues and team really showed leadership early on is they did something pretty different for a small city, which is a lot of small cities will look into their budget, you know, the equivalent of you looking into your wallet and saying, what can I afford? And in the case of Hoboken, you know, that's like affording a flood pump or a water pump just to pump out the water after you're flooded. And they were very, very open to having a different conversation of like, even though we don't have the money for this now, what could we do and how could we pay for it? And I think they're a real model of adaptation ambition turned to practice. And the process of how they did that and all the different ways that cities tend to fall off that path 
and how Hoboken didn't is really useful for other small and medium-sized communities that have a hard time seeing themselves in San Francisco with its tremendous staff and resources, but could really look at Hoboken and say, well, you know, I could, I could do that. I could see that happening here. Great. I'm looking forward to my conversation with Caleb, but I want to wrap up this conversation with you. And do you consider yourself an adaptation professional? You've listened to this podcast, and so you kind of <laughs> hear me talk about that. But in what yeah. you're doing, do you feel like you're part of that community? You know, I'm, I'm glad when we're included in that <laughs> community, but it's it's not necessarily how I describe myself. I still describe myself as a designer and an architect where you're you're solving problems for communities. And climate is absolutely part, climate change is part of everything we do. But I think because it's taken me a long time to describe myself as an adaptation professional, even though it's something I've worked on from well before it was trendy, when it was still mitigation versus adaptation. Right. And I think the reluctance to say that is because we don't live in an advocacy space. We live in a, a kind of nuts and bolts problem solving space. And I think now I would say, yeah, we're absolutely adaptation professionals and we need more of us and we need more of big engineering firms to have adaptation professionals. So it's less of a sidebar conversation. So you are an adapter. Good, good, good. I, yeah. Uh, so do you do anything besides listen to this podcast to feel like you're part of that broader community? Because you, 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 there's the National Adaptation Forum and some associations. Um, are you con connecting or do you feel it? Do you find any value in doing any of that yet? I do. I, um, I'm a proud card carrying member of ASAP, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. And I do a ton of actually mentoring in the field, much more so for recent college grads that have graduated with STEM degrees and are looking to be adaptation professionals, but there isn't a natural career path. And so I get a lot of folks reaching out to our team saying, how did you get where you're at? And that's always a, you know, it can, it can always spark an existential crisis, right? Because I think we've, we've gotten to where we are by following and solving interesting problems, not by trying to create a career path. And I think I've learned a lot about the field and I'm, I'm a proud adapter because of those conversations about the generations of folks coming up who are being much more intentional about creating that career path within institutions that don't necessarily have it. I, I've been a past attendee of the California Adaptation Forum and I find it super valuable to be able to engage with folks who do this every day when we don't necessarily interact in the field very much. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I, same thing with me. I, I hear from listeners that are, you know, student listeners who want to get into the field, and I don't necessarily have all the answers for them. Yeah. And and part of the things that comes up in the podcast is, you know, university programs that aren't quite there yet in regards to training at you know you, you you get environmental science and you know how it is right now. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is you have, like you said, STEM background, and you know you can. I don't I hate to describe it as wing it, but you can yeah. catch up relatively quickly. But the sign that we're maturing as a field is that, oh, I got a master's in adaptation and architectural planning. And it, you, there's right? coursework. <laughs> and I, I have an upcoming episode I, I'm talking with someone who, who who's programmatically looking at you know, how do you develop a program at a university uh, mm -hmm. around this issue. And I'm looking forward to that and kind of digging into that just because I think there's a huge demand and the universities aren't there yet. There's professors doing incredible work, but programmatically yeah. they are not even close. You know, this is a total tangent from my current infrastructure life, but it's a little bit like 
15 years ago, a lot of colleges were struggling with creating multidisciplinary programs. And they graduated a set of people who nobody knew how to evaluate what they were good at. And so it was easier to have a, a degree in one thing. And then people would know, you know, oh, you're an architect or you're an accountant or you're an engineer. And I think adaptation, because it is so cross cutting, is even a level beyond that, right? Instead of multiple disciplines, you're doing something truly interdisciplinary. And so we really do need those integrators trained up and trained up well. But the generation that's training them is learning as they go. And we need to make sure that those young folks who are moving through everything from undergrad to, to PhD programs, right? Graduate programs will evaluate you based on your discipline. And so I think there's a real structural set of problems, not just in the private sector or in the public sector. It's really how do you train and hire for the folks who can do this well? And I think there's a lot to learn from places like the tech sector, where you have a set of skills that are really identifiable and you can judge them based on quality. But then you can move to different applications with some real sensitivity and pragmatism and creativity. Yeah. And, you know, part of what's exciting about being adaptation is because of what your program, I mean, this innovative things that are kind of coming through and you can really experiment and there's not a lot of people saying, no, you can't do that. That's very exciting. But I just wonder in 10, 20 years as more people kind of, it bakes into what their expertise is. They're going to look at us as dinosaurs that, you know, there's, this is a bit more of a sophisticated field than you're giving it credit for. And, you know, I just wonder if it's going to evolve that way. I look forward to the day when we hire the first person who thinks that we're dinosaurs because it means that we've gotten someone who's going to improve what we do dramatically. And I can't wait. I think I think there is a generation of folks who's coming up that way and it's desperately needed inside government institutions, local to federal and and across big firms that have been doing things the same way for a long time. Yeah, ASAP. I know they're trying to encourage the certification, whatever. And I just, you know, tagline could be well, adaptation professionals no longer winging it. You know, that's sort of like <laughs> <laughs> that's the end goal with what they're doing. But at the same time, I still feel like we've got quite a while of just, you know, experimenting, which is kind of exciting. So that's right. And I think the the experimenting is tremendously valuable and we have to ke- create the space where it's okay to get it slightly wrong and learn because if you don't learn from those mistakes, we we're going to, we're going to end up just doing the safe thing rather than the necessary thing. And that's where I'm really excited about some of the procurement work as unsexy as it sounds is creating that space for cities to, to safely experiment, not in the Silicon Valley, you know, fail fast model because you just aren't, you can't fail communities, right? You can't put public health and safety at risk. But you do need to be able to learn and continuously improve. And I think we're getting better at it in the last you know, eight years that we've been at this. Let me assure you that procurement does sound unsexy. So <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> okay. Great fear confirmed, Doug. <laughs> uh, you probably know what's coming. But my last question is if you could recommend anyone to come on. Well, you know what? <laughs> I keep doing this, too, because it's a new question. I've got two questions now. Yeah. And um, the first question is, and I'll wait to ask the final question, is who's been an inspiration to you in, in the adaptation space? And just if you could keep it mm-hmm. to one, because every single person's like, can I give 17 examples? I'll try <laughs> to keep it to one if you can. 
For sure. I'm going to give you one. And he is like a beacon for me in the adaptation space, even though he's never worked in adaptation. And it's a friend and colleague who retired from the EPA, who I got to work with for several years. His name is Mike Stahl. And he worked his way up through the ranks of decades of the EPA in the compliance and enforcement programs. And one of the things he did that was amazing was measure the value of environmental protection and help the whole agency make the case for not doing something. So, you know, here is the pollution avoided. And what I learned from him is really the underpinning of everything that I've done in my career in adaptation, which is how do you make the case for those successes that are something that doesn't happen? Because when you're in government, the first year you do that, everyone applauds. The second year, your budget is cut because you clearly don't need it. And the third year, your job and your staff go away. And so being able to do that well in this field is one of the things that I give him enormous credit for, for having really shown me how it's done across decades in environmental regulation and compliance and enforcement. So thanks, Mike. <laughs> That's awesome. A, a career bureaucrat, you know, they, they're, they're unlauded out there. So good, good, good. Oh, so many. And they're so good. <laughs> Final question is if you could recommend someone to actually come on the podcast, who would it be? Yeah. So I would recommend there's a fantastic chief resilience officer. Her name is Marisa Ajo. And she is one of the rare birds that has moved across multiple cities and helped develop really interesting adaptation and resilience solutions in very different contexts. So she started out in the city of Los Angeles and is now the CRO for the city of Houston. And I think having her on just talking about those two very different cities and the, the ambitions in each coming from very, very different politics would be fascinating. All right, cool. And, and you, you know her. I do. Yeah, I'm happy to happy to connect you. She's great. Okay, awesome. So thank you so much for coming on. You're doing really important work. Like we said, it might not sound sexy, but it's just this is the stuff that's going to get society to that next level. So deeply appreciate what you're up to. And thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hey, adapters. Joining me is Caleb Stratton. Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Hoboken. Hi, Caleb. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So you're coming on as part of this conversation I'm having with Shalini, and so we wanted to hear a little bit more about what's going on in Hoboken. But what do you do, though, first as the Chief Resilience Officer for the city there? What does that role mean? So my responsibilities are to manage our adaptation projects and help align the money that we're spending in the city with risk reduction goals. And to do that, not by doing single use projects, but trying to realize multiple uses through our interventions. So an example of that is a project that I know you've talked to Shalini about, which is our Northwest Park, approximately an $80 million project where we're doing subsurface storage for stormwater, uh, reducing flood risk, residual flood risk in the area around the park, but also producing a new amenity for the community. So was Hurricane Sandy really the impetus to do this, or was this already in the works? Absolutely. It actually goes back one year prior. Hurricane Irene in the city was a consequential rain event. I want to say it was uh, we had multiple feet of water on the western side of the city, so picture like a Houston-esque flood event, and that got everyone's attention. And that started what is part of our comprehensive water management strategy. That started our delay stored discharge projects, which are making more capacity in our sewer system, 
providing pumps to pump water when necessary, um, and then also uh, keeping water out of our sewer system. Okay, so I just, I guess to give people a visual, what happened during Hurricane Sandy, though, I, it was a much more consequential event. I mean, the city was underwater, right? So Irene had multiple feet of water in certain low-lying areas of the city. Sandy was a catastrophic 80% of the one-mile-square city of Hoboken flooded. Um, We were out of power for a couple weeks. Irene got the city's attention. Sandy cemented the fact that we need to bend the will and the abilities of local government to reducing risks in these areas in between 2011 and 2012. Um, this, we started to tease out this strategy, this idea of adaptation and really what you're seeing now in, in our construction activities for Northwest Park was the, the genesis of that idea came from Irene and Sandy, but was, it, re- it was really stood up on its feet by uh, some of Shalini's early work, Refocus. So how did that fold? How did, was this something kind of a new way of thinking? How did you get involved with them in the first place? I, I think that we were introduced to her team through it was either a grant opportunity or they had reached out to us directly, but she had a she had a tranche of funding to work with cities across the country that were working on adaptation, and we were just, we happened to be one of the ones that she was interested in working with. I would say her pre-investment work and visioning work with the city of Hoboken was occurring while we were in our like prime adaptation and planning mode. So it, it, there was a real synergy there with how her team was able to step in, and kind of lead us towards these ideas. So we're, we're the, this is not storing water underneath the park is not a new concept. It's been done in Philadelphia and Rotterdam, but we were able to kind of take and look at best practices elsewhere and apply them to this kind of complex urban environment. And so this particular project that I think is the Northwest project that you're working on, what what are the multiple purposes? But I guess what's the ultimate purpose? It's just sort of flood mitigation? Flood mitigation for the western side of the city, our sewage, our drainage areas are split into seven neighborhoods. This neighborhood, which we call the H7 sewer shed, we are going to go from doing this project, we are going to go from four combined sewer overflow events a month to four combined uh, sewer overflows a year. So 48 overflows down to four overflows. That's consistent with direction we're getting from the EPA to satisfy our long-term control plans. What that what it means is there's a high-level storm sewer separation. So we're kind of creating a new drainage area that will redirect flow stormwater to the five-acre Northwest Park. We're in construction um, of a subsurface cistern, and then our project partners, North Hudson Sewage, are building a pump so that after water flows to the park, you're kind of shaving the the top off of that bell curve of where flood events occur. But then on the surface of the park, we've got a uh, high school-sized soccer field, a uh, a lawn for people to come, an amphitheater, skating rink. There's rain gardens all over the site. So the surface of the site itself has 750,000 gallons of storage um, of rainwater on the surface, and then we've got a million gallon subsurface. And I think to put that into context, an Olympic-sized swimming pool is like 660,000 gallons. So three Olympic-sized swimming pools of water that would otherwise be on the city streets or overflowing to the Hudson River during a rain event. It, it sounds like like major restructuring some of the plumbing, but uh, I imagine that the city of Hoboken. It's very built up, and so green infrastructure as a way to mitigate flooding just wasn't an option for you guys. We have a green infrastructure strategic plan, but a lot of a lot of the challenges we find with green infrastructure is it's expensive. It's expensive to maintain, and then we're really tracking towards big volume. We need to have areas where water can flow to. This is a principle that we've taken 
from the Dutch, you know, living with the water, it's, it's not always about managing it through best practices. Uh, we have a lot of green infrastructure installed throughout the city. Part of that delay strategy I mentioned before is this is the last, the Northwest Park is the last. We have three resilience parks on the western side of the city. Uh, the first one we did was a 200,000-gallon subsurface project. The second one was a 400,000-gallon subsurface project. Those, both those projects were built and opened in 2017 and 2019. This is our most ambitious for sure. Uh, but in addition to that, we've done right-of-way bioswales, curb extension bump-outs, um, and we've installed – we actually did a demonstration project around City Hall, very visible area. Uh, like you said, the city's super built out. It's somewhere in the neighborhood, like 6,000 pedestrians during the peak hour that are walking by. So we did bioswales, cisterns, planters, uh, porous concrete all around City Hall to give – it was one of these interventions where people were like, do something. We want to address flooding and – we thought it would be a good way to put our money where our mouth is to do it all around City Hall. People see it, interact with it, can understand it. It's visible. We actually have a demonstration of our green roofs. We have a big green roof program. So, yeah, it, it was just a, this kind of natural extension of the importance of green infrastructure, but not relying on that exclusively. I would say that all most of our projects are this green-gray blend where under the ground we're pretty heavily engineered, pretty, I'd say pretty, pretty traditional, and then above the surface we like to uh, provide that community amenity, but we're not relying exclusively on green infrastructure. I have a few more questions here. And regarding the public, and you you bring up these projects and you need to get them funded, you need to get public support, you need to get like the local leadership support. Is climate change used as sort of the rhetoric or a uh, communication strategy to get people on board, or do you just kind of avoid it? I mean, is it even talked about by the local population as you need to do what you're doing here to adapt to climate change? I, I So it's a that's a great question. I think that we talk about, we usually talk about climate change through the lens of our, like, uh, reducing our carbon footprint. And we, I would say that we put that, like, the climate change topic in our, in our, like, sustainability book of business. In, as far as resiliency goes, we use climate change as a, as an obvious and unknown kind of impact to the this kind of dynamic system we already live in but our the challenges we have are so great here in Hoboken that I don't necessarily need to frame the challenge within the context of climate change uh, the impacts that we're dealing with are here and now and that rather than talk about something that could be potentially like a debate item polarizing um, it's not the foundation from which we build our you know arguments from um, so it's it's part of the conversation don't necessarily focus on it. Talk about it a lot more in our sustainability efforts. Um, but for our big park build-out projects, we're a little more centered. Conversations a little more centered on risk reduction and you know the community. That's a it's a serious concern because they've lived through Irene and Sandy, and I think that um, we have a lot of support to reduce those risks that really underpin quality of life and the ability to conduct business in the city. Okay, so you're the chief resilience officer. Are you part of that whole group from that was funded? I think it was the Rockefeller Foundation. Are you part of that, or are you just separate? No, we watched. You know, like Hoboken is this little community across the river from Manhattan. We watched Danza really in New York City uh, step into the program. We met with Melissa Aho in the city of Los Angeles. They they invited us to come out. We uh, met with the Rockefeller Foundation. We hosted the Rockefeller Foundation, but the position that I was in, the position that the city was working in, we were we were kind of up and running and. 
be applied to all three rounds of 100 resilient cities would have loved to be part of that but know that this is uh we were an outgrowth and extension of that and we, we borrowed heavily heavily from the work that arab did the work that was done at the united nations um to kind of frame out our resilience strategy and so two two things i want to highlight is that one the, the chief resiliency officer position i think in the state of New Jersey, I, I was the first in the state of New Jersey, but the state itself has appointed a chief resiliency officer, so it's kind of growing. Um, and the second thing is, uh, is I don't know when we had met with Melissa and her team in Los Angeles. I think that LA had appointed a deputy chief resiliency officer in every one of their divisions in the city. Wow. So that so it's it's I, I'm an out I'm an outgrowth of that original 100 resilient cities. I think more cities are adopting these practices. Um, and it's kind of this growing idea that we need to adapt, yes, to climate change, but also just adapt our thinking and uh, the, our best practices. It's my understanding that Rockefeller pulled back on that, but it's it's great that it spurred a lot of other communities like yours to like commit to it, and you're still going on. So that that's very encouraging. Yeah. A couple easy questions here to wrap this up. Okay, besides the people, what makes Hoboken so great? <laughs> it's, it's, it's always tough to answer questions when you like pat yourself on the back. But um, I think that one of the attributes that makes Hoboken a great community is that in the post-industrial era, when so Hoboken was a working waterfront city, Hoboken was the point of disembarkment for World War One, but it was a blue collar city. And it's a city that developed at a, at a village scale. So what I mean is we have a, a really traditional gridded street system and we have, you know, three to four story buildings. It's that I think it's, we've got the special sauce for scale. Uh, so it feels like a community, even though we're in directly across from the West Village, the city of, of New York, Manhattan, like the, 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 the megalopolis that the New York region is. I think that the scale of the city of Hoboken and uh, so my when I started this, that one of the things that Hoboken has done has invested in preserving waterfront access as a community good. So there are very few remain. There's one remaining parcel of the land that we're working to acquire, but uh, Hoboken has a, a mile and a half of contiguous New York City views and waterfront access wow. um, that is community uh, like uh, accessible. So you can go to work on the ferry, you can go to work on the train, but um, the idea that we're kind of this ur- urban village with connectivity and access to our waterfront, um, I, I just really think that's an incredible asset. And uh, I, I think that Hoboken has done well to preserve this idea of a community within all the changes that are occurring. So like using retail stores, we don't have big boxes. It's kind of like you go, you walk to go out to lunch, you walk to go out to dinner, you walk to, you know, to pick up groceries on the way home and, I have to give a lot of credit to our director of transportation. We were one of the first communities on the East Coast to pilot scooter share. Um, so we're heavily, heavily invested in micro mobility. Bike sharing got, we just received a lead gold rating from the U.S. Green Building Council. So aside from like the flood risk stuff, we've got this, I'd like to say we have this special sauce for kind of quality of life. Wow, great! I didn't learn a ton right there. And and this is the last question, and I would be remiss by not asking: Is have you ever actually met the cake boss? I have not. Uh, I I have been uh, I've been part of like photo shoots where I am there, and <laughs> past Mayor Zimmer would be with him doing something, or he'd be introducing someone. But uh, me, me and Buddy are not buddies. I just. 
I just imagine it was such a small community. Everybody kind of knew each other, and you knew the kid. That's that was probably naive, but uh, I, I'm looking. I'm looking. Uh, I am looking right now at the his like delicatessen. <laughs> it is literally outside of my window at City Hall. No, but it's a great institution. We're happy to have them. And, you know, I, I just want to thank you, Doug, for your time and appreciate the interest. I know you've got a, a full slate and I appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, just fantastic the work that Hoboken's doing. And thanks again for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Shalini and Caleb for coming on. So many interesting things are rising in the climate space. Some of them don't get a lot of attention. Investing in infrastructure is where a lot of money will be dedicated to adaptation in the coming years. Communities will need help to find the proper way to do this planning, but more importantly, just becoming aware of their options in this changing climate. Refocus seems to have a good model of creating that awareness and walking cities through this process. And I'm very encouraged to see Caleb and the city of Hoboken really take this issue seriously. I guess that's what happens when you get hit by a major hurricane, but hopefully others can learn from their experiences. Okay, don't forget to check out the Simpatico Studios link in my show notes if you're interested in coming on or learning more about that. And don't forget to donate. America Daps is a charitable organization and we count on your support. Thanks to all those that have been recurring donors. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join. I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and See what others are sharing on the wall. On that note, I love hearing from you. Come on. I know you're out there. You're working for cool organizations or you're just someone in the public. You're not even related to the field, but you listen because you want to learn. I love hearing from you. Email me at americadaps at gmail.com. And you know, it's actually led to some interesting partnerships. You never know what might happen. So definitely take the time. Also, it's always nice to get a positive review on Apple Podcasts. If you're using, uh, if you listen to uh, my podcast on your iPhone, you're probably using the Apple Podcast app. You go in, you search for America Daps, and then there's an opportunity to rate and review. You can give it five stars. And if you want to actually make an effort to write something, I love reading those, just seeing why you get value out of it. So, hey, that would be greatly appreciated from my end. So, check it out. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.